Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike. I am the youth pastor here at Jericho Ridge, and I have been spending many of my Sunday mornings uh, just over in the green room. Um, if you hear lots of yells and thumps from over there, that's our grade five sixes uh, as I uh, wrangle them around in there. Uh, and so that's where I've been spending a lot of my Sunday mornings, so it's nice to be with you this morning. Not that it's not nice to be with those kids because they're a lot of fun and we do lots of fun stuff in there. And so uh, I get the opportunity to speak this morning and you get to hear the kind of riffraff that I'm teaching your youth. So that's good. It's excellent. <laughs> so we've, uh, we've wrapped up our series in uh, Jude uh, and now we're coming into a new series that you can see on the screen is called Serpents and Doves. And so the title and the focus of this series comes from Jesus' words to his disciples just before he sends them out on their first mini missions trip. And we find these words in Matthew 10, 16. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. And so as we come into the series, we're going to be looking at how can we follow Jesus' words? How can we combine the wisdom of a snake with the gentleness and the innocence of a dove. And so to do this, we are going to take chunks of scripture and, and go through them and see what the Bible tells us and how to balance those aspects. And so this morning we kick off this series looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians, but before we get there, we're gonna lay out some context. So 2 Corinthians is the second letter that Paul writes to this church. Uh, and if you're very interested in biblical authorship, as some scholars are, some people believe that 2 Corinthians is actually a second, third, and perhaps even a fourth letter all kind of mashed together that Paul has sent. But for simplicity, we'll just say there's two letters. It makes it a lot easier. And so in the first letter that Paul is writing, he uh, writes as he often does to churches and individuals to help solve some problems that are going on in the Corinthian church. In the first letter, one of the main problems that he's looking at is this Corinthian's hyper-spirituality. And this is expressed in two different ways in the city of Corinth. The first way is this misinterpretation of freedom in Christ. And so the Corinthians uh, take this very dualistic theology that's popular in Greek uh, philosophy and culture at the time and take the body and the soul as two separate things. And when they throw Jesus into that mix, they think the soul is a super important part and the physical is not that important. And so their theology is that they are eventually gonna come disembodied souls in the afterlife. And so they take that and they interpret this freedom in Christ as saying, I can do anything with my physical body because it's separate from my soul and my soul is what's important. And so this allowed them to delve into things like sexual immorality, saying that's not gonna taint my soul because it's just a physical thing. And so Paul is writing to correct them of this. In some ways they interpret it correctly but take it too far. So they're eating this meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the temple. And they're saying we can eat this because we know that there's only one true God and so therefore what this has been sacrificed to doesn't really exist so it's okay to eat. 
And Paul says, yes, you're right. It's fine. You can do that. But the problem that you're doing is you're doing this in front of new believers who have just come out of that culture. And so they have a tough time wrapping their minds around that yet. And so by eating this in front of them, you're causing them to stumble in their new faith. You're not doing that quite well. The other way it expressed itself was in this kind of spiritual hierarchy. So they viewed particular gifts and experiences as very important. If you had these experiences, then you could show everyone that you were a better Christian than the rest. And this um, mostly expressed itself in the speaking of tongues in this church. If they could speak in tongues, which they like to do in front of everyone, it could show everyone that they are a very spiritual person. They're a very good Christian. And so these are some of the things that Paul is addressing in the first letter. We then come to 2 Corinthians. And Paul starts the letter off by talking about suffering, a very physical thing. He tells of his own suffering. And in that suffering, because he is suffering for Christ, he is comforted by God. And because he's comforted in that, he's able to go and comfort other people who are suffering. He then goes on to talk about how in the face of mortal danger, and he uses his experience in Asia at that time, that in the face of threats and possible death, he is able to stand secure and preach Jesus to the people because he knows that the spirit of God dwells within him. And the same spirit that dwells in him is the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And so he knows that he can preach confidently in the face of death because when his earthly body does perish, he'll be given a new eternal physical body that he desires to have. So he opens 2 Corinthians along those same themes, bringing the Corinthians view back to that the physical does actually matter. He talks about suffering, a physical experience. He talks about preaching about Jesus to people in the face of mortal danger. And he talks about the body that he will receive after death and says that's a physical body. And that brings us to our passage today in 2 Corinthians for, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. And I'm just going to read the whole passage to start here. Because we understand our fear, fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us, so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. 
and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we might be made right with God through Christ. So Paul begins this passage by giving his motivation for preaching and tells us why he preaches the way he does. Paul preaches because he knows the fear of the Lord, or as the NLT puts it, our fearful responsibility to God. And throughout Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is constantly said over and over again to be the beginning of all wisdom, over and over again. And now the fear of the Lord is not Paul being afraid of God, but it's Paul properly recognizing his rightful place in relation to God's rightful place. It is Paul recognizing that God is king of the universe and he is not. And it is out of this knowledge that God is king that Paul preaches and serves God. It is out of that knowledge that Paul preaches the way he does and wants to persuade people to come to the realization that God is king and they are not. Paul preaches in a particular style because he knows he is known by God. His heart is known by God. And he's hoping that the Corinthians realize this as well, that God will speak to them about this through their conscience. In his previous letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to defend his preaching style. It was very popular in Greek culture to go and listen to teachers, especially philosophers, and hear them teach. And the intrigue wasn't in what they were teaching necessarily, but seeing whether they could persuade people through the style of teaching of rhetoric, the way they were able to persuade, the language they used to manipulate and get people to believe what they were saying. That's what interested them. And Paul instead comes and he focuses on the content of the gospel rather than the style that he's preaching. Some scholars believe that Paul had a stammer and so wasn't as great of a preacher as he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And also that Paul wasn't the greatest man to look at. If you look uh, at different passages where he's describing the things he's gone through, he was a beaten up, shriveled man from all of his experiences. And so he shows up in Corinth, who's used to having these great teachers come with these flowery, flowery, see, I can't even say that word, language, speaking to them. And then they have stammering Paul come, who doesn't seem very impressive at all. But Paul focuses on the content. And many of those Corinthians in that church came to Christ because of what Paul preached, not the way he preached it. But Paul says, I preach this way because I'm known by God. It's about the heart not about how I say it. I want to put, he wants to put the focus on God and not on himself. So Paul then calls them not to boast about the outward appearance, but about the heart. Just as in his first letter, he rebukes the Corinthian notion that if you did those outward, crazy spiritual things, it meant you were a better, better Christian than the rest Paul says it's not about that. It's about the transformation that happens within. And Paul hints at this throughout the letter as he starts calling out people who are boasting about outward appearances 
In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls out people who carry letters of recommendation with them to give to other people. In 11.22, he he calls out people who brag about their Jewish ancestry. In 12.1, he calls out people who brag about ecstatic visionary experiences. And in 12.11-13, he calls out people who brag about the miracles that they have performed. He's calling out their motivations. They're acting in order to impress other people rather than out of the love of God or out of the love for those people. And so Paul follows this up by saying, if, we seem, if it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. These ecstatic experiences can make you seem crazy. As, I don't know if you feel this way, but as a Mennonite and being coming to faith and growing up in a Mennonite Brethren church, the first time I heard someone speak in tongues, I was like, what the heck is going on? Someone from outside a church, if they come in and a bunch of people are speaking tongues, they're probably going to think these people are crazy. It happened to the, the apostles themselves. On Pentecost, the spirit comes down and they start speaking in different tongues. And some people go by and they stop. And they're like, what's going on? And they were wondering, this is amazing. But many people come and say, these people are drunk at 10 in the morning. These people are insane. They're crazy. So Paul is saying that these crazy, ecstatic, grand visions, these great miracles, uh, these speaking in tongues aren't a validation of his relationship with God. They don't make him a better Christian than the other people, as the Corinthians were saying. He's saying what's actually for the benefit of other people isn't these crazy experiences, but the normal, the sane, his preaching and persuasion of people that God is king are for the benefit of other people so that they too can come up and come into relationship with God. Again, it's a follow-up to his last letter when he was addressing this issue of tongues and prophecy in Corinth. They like to all gather together, and because they wanted to show everyone else how spiritual and how great they are, they all just started talking over each other. Some people were speaking in tongues, some people were trying to say prophetic words, but they're all saying it at once. It felt like a youth night. Everyone's speaking at once. And so Paul says to bring order and structure, one person at a time, stand up and speak so that you can actually hear these words. And Paul says, I would rather come into a gathering of people, stand up and speak a word of prophecy that everyone can understand and grasp than stand up and speak in this angelic tongue because that doesn't benefit outsiders who are coming in and listening, whereas a word of prophecy can. I've never heard of someone who came and heard someone speaking in tongues and came into relationship with Christ without an interpretation of tongues. And so Paul isn't saying that tongues is bad. That's not what I'm trying to say either. But Paul is saying that when he has those grand visions, when he speaks in tongues, it's bringing him closer in relationship with God. But when he seems in his right mind and not doing those crazy things, 
and he's speaking his right mind, he's speaking clearly, is for the benefit of other people. So then Paul turns to the underlying motivation for everything he does. For the love of Christ controls us, or I like in the NLT's footnotes, they have an alternative translation, and it says, for the love of Christ urges us on. And the reason why this urges them on in the face of suffering and even death is that since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Paul travels the world, preaches Jesus in the face of persecution, often arrested, often threatened for doing so because Christ has removed the barrier between humanity and God. His foundation for ministry, as commentator Colin Cruz puts it, is wanting to give something to others because Jesus gave him everything. Christ dying for all convinced him of Christ's love for him. And since Christ died for him, And for Christ's love for the world, since he died for the world, he preaches in order to bring that same recognition of love. He preaches in order for people to recognize as well that God loves him and that God loves the world. So when Paul is saying that Christ died for all, he's not saying that everyone will be saved. Rather, he is saying that the redemption that Christ offers through his death and resurrection is available to everyone. And yet some choose not to accept it. And Paul addresses this a little later in the passage, so we will too. But a big thing in this, uh, this verse is this word all. Often we can take, um, because of the culture we live in, salvation redemption is a very individual experience I was saved on this day Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior and etc and etc but Jesus' actions Jesus' life, death resurrection and ascension have a cosmic effect he lived died, was raised and ascended to the right hand of God not to gather to himself a bunch of individuals but a people a community who come together motivated by the love of Christ, who live together in that community, who serve and love one another because Christ lived, died, was raised, and ascended for all those people that call themselves members of that people, the church, of which Jericho is an expression of that global people. The love and community that is shared and built up in that expression comes from the overflowing love of God who died for all. And then it bubbles and it swirls amongst this community as people see a person next to them who's been reconciled by God, who's been loved by God, and so they too love that person. And within that church, that love boils and overflows out into our communities and our neighborhoods and the places that don't recognize God as king. So we are not redeemed as individuals, but as a people of God.
Jesus died for all as humanity's representative. And so since he died on behalf of all humanity, Paul says it logically follows that so have everyone died in Christ's death. And so the result of everyone dying through Christ is what Paul goes on to next. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that everyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Because all have died with Christ, therefore, since Christ was raised, everyone is raised with Christ into a new creation. And again, we often view this in an individualistic sense, which is in part true. We are all made into new creations, but it misses a big part of the picture. And even this NLT translation highlights that individualistic viewpoint by saying they've been created into a new person. The ESV says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this language of new creation echoes the hope of the entirety of Scripture. It harkens back to Isaiah. For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. The wild animals in the fields will thank me. The jackals and owls too for giving them water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. I have made Israel for myself and they will someday honor me before the whole world. There's corporate language, there's cosmic language all throughout there. The redemption, the new creation that God brings is bringing rivers into dry wastelands. That's a redemption of creation, of animals coming that don't have water in those wastelands having this river. He brings... Uh, he makes a people, Israel, an entire nation for himself who will someday honor him before the entire world. Or elsewhere in Isaiah, it says, look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, again, cosmic, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. He's redeeming and reconciling a people to be a source of joy, a people in whom he can delight. And this hope for new creation reverberates all the way into the New Testament to the very end in one of my favorite passages in the Bible, in Revelation then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of, the, out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. God's home is now among his people. And so we are made in a new creation 
to reflect the all-encompassing new creation that is coming. We are a community to represent the people of God who dwell now experiencing new creation as we can in this world as a transformation within us, within the community. We are reconciled to God to be that people of God he makes for himself that will someday bring him glory throughout the whole world, that people of God that he can rejoice in, that will be a source of joy, that people of God with whom God himself dwells among. And so we are transformed into a new creation. And Paul touches on two of the ways in which we are transformed. The first is the lens in which we view the world. He said earlier, so we have stopped evaluating people from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Viewing Christ from a human point of view is very easy to see Jesus' time on earth as an utter failure. People in, that, uh, in the first century believed that the Messiah was going to come, going to raise an army, was going to beat up Rome, kick him out, and was going to establish Israel as a kingdom on earth once again. Jesus comes and is killed by the Romans on a cross. From a human expectation, human point of view, that was a fail. But from a spiritual, spirit, God point of view, it is God using death against itself to defeat it by raising Jesus from the dead three days later. By having Jesus ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of God as king over the world. Again, it's Paul's paralleling, not looking at the outward realities, but what is happening, the transformation on the inside, the human's view, the outward, but God lenses the inner. And he's laid out this lens actually throughout the earlier chapters of 2 Corinthians. In 4.18, he says, we do not look at the things which are seen, a human point of view, but the things that are not seen, a God point of view. Our earthly tent will be destroyed, a human point of view, but we will have a new body, eternal, God point of view. We walk by faith, God point of view, not by sight, a human point of view. We do not glory in appearance, human point of view, but in the heart, God's point of view. It's a new worldview, the worldview of new creation. The second transformation comes in a new calling, which is what Paul talks about in the next section. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The new creation in the here and now is to be agents of reconciliation to those who have not accepted reconciliation yet. And this reconciliation between God and humanity 
is not initiated by us, but by God himself, by coming and living on earth and dying and being raised and ascending. Christ's death removed for all the barrier of sin that was separating humanity from God. However, Paul recognizes that not all live in such a way. The removal of the barrier is a gift from God, and so it must be accepted. Perhaps some people don't know that the barrier's been removed. Or don't trust that the barrier has been removed. It's kind of like if you go on the internet, like I go on the internet, and I like looking at dog gifts. And Caitlin says I have a very particular laugh when I'm laughing at something that has to do with a dog, apparently. <laughs> but you see uh, these, these dogs that as puppies made a mistake in trying to get into the house when the sliding glass door was closed and ran into it. And they develop a lack of trust of doorways. <laughs> and so you can see videos or GIFs of dogs sitting at wide open doorways not believing that the barrier is not there anymore. I, had, I saw one the other day that I really enjoyed of a dog that as a puppy ran into a door and every single doorway it goes through, it will stop at the doorway, turn around and go butt first <laughs> because of a bad experience it had. It doesn't trust that the barrier has been removed and sometimes we can be like that. We don't trust that God has removed the barrier. But just because we don't trust or don't believe that God has removed the barrier doesn't make it any less true that he has. Just because the dog doesn't believe that there's no barrier there doesn't mean that there is magically a barrier there. So perhaps we are just unaware or untrusting that God can remove that barrier. Maybe we think our contribution to that barrier is too much for God to remove. Or perhaps we're trying to rebuild that barrier by rejecting and refusing God himself. But it has been removed because Christ died for all. And since many still don't live as if reconciliation has been achieved, we are given the call to reconcile people to God, to help them realize that that barrier is removed, to come into the new creation, to come into the new people of God. And now having laid out this call that is on their lives now, Paul turns to the Corinthians specifically and calls them to be reconciled to God. Paul's writing this to a church, a group of people who are in the people of God, and yet they still need to be reconciled to him. And it's because they've been believing that they are the initiators of removing that barrier. That by having these grand spiritual experiences and showing everyone, impressing everyone how spiritual they are, that they're showing that they're removing that barrier between them and God. They've traded in the grace of God for works. But we don't need to work to be reconciled to God because the barrier is already gone. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. It has been done. And rather, we do works. We serve and love one another 
because Christ has removed that barrier, because he has achieved that victory, because he loves us so much, that flows out, and we love and serve one another. And that's a big difference between serving and loving in order to be saved ourselves and serving and loving because we've already been saved. The root of all wisdom is fear of the Lord. And so to be wise as serpents, we need to know our standing before God. We need to know that God is king over the universe, and we are not. However, this king has reconciled us to himself. He loves us so deeply that he died for all. He died for the church. And flowing out of that wisdom of God's love, we are motivated to love those he loves one another in the church and all humanity whom he died for. We love and serve not because we need to be reconciled, but because we have already been. And so as ministers of reconciliation, we seek to bring reconciliation in all areas who in our neighborhoods, schools, workplaces need to be reconciled to God. Who, need to realize, who needs to realize that the barrier has been removed and that God is calling them into a community of reconciled people. Perhaps you are here this morning and have yet to receive this free gift that God has offered. Perhaps you thought God possibly couldn't remove your contribution to that barrier. Well, he can and he has. Perhaps you have refused to acknowledge God's outstretched hand, but you've been feeling him tugging at your heart. We echo Paul's words, be reconciled with God. We are going to have prayer team members at the back that you can go and pray with to be reconciled to God. Maybe you've traded that trust that the work has been done. I've been trying to earn your way to reconciliation. It's already there. Be reconciled to God. Come pray at the back. As ministers of reconciliation, we seek to be reconciled to all people. Who within the church do we need to be reconciled to? Where do we need to offer forgiveness to a fellow minister of reconciliation? Where do we need to seek forgiveness from a fellow person of God? If we cannot be reconciled with a fellow church brother or sister, a fellow minister of reconciliation, how can we bring that into our workplaces, neighborhoods, and schools? So the worship team is going to come out and they're going to lead us in a song of worship. And God is calling us to be ministers of reconciliation. There are prayer team members at the back which will walk alongside us as people of God together seeking how we can bring reconciliation so they want to come with you before the throne of God 
to ask for guidance and wisdom and gentleness and innocence.